0: So I think at um, the highest level, I think the the housing issue is this mismatch between income and rents.
1: This is In Short Supply, a podcast series examining how the housing crisis, which is worsening with growing inflation, impacts our local communities. It is part of the day's year-long investigative initiative called the Housing Solutions Lab. We'll explore the issue from the perspective of the individuals and families who have been most disproportionately affected and with a focus on solutions. What legislation, programs, community responses, and funding are needed or have had the most impact? I'm Carlos Virgen, Assistant Managing Editor for Audience Development and Podcast Producer at The Day in New London, Connecticut. In this first episode of the podcast, we'll hear from day staff writer, Elizabeth Regan, as she talks about how our region is faring when it comes to the housing crisis and why there seems to be a short supply of affordable homes and developments and options for some members of our communities. How do we address what Kathy Zall, the executive director of the new London Homeless Hospitality Center calls, the mismatch between what a person earns and the cost of living. Here's Elizabeth.
2: I think we have to start by talking about what affordable actually means. Uh, There's a lot of terms being thrown around that mean different things to different people, but there's this basic overarching understanding of affordable housing that most people seem to agree on. So that is that a house or apartment is Considered affordable when the people living there don't spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs. That means the mortgage or rent payment, plus stuff like utilities, insurance, and taxes. Um, but 40% of state residents pay more than that, according to figures from the Connecticut Data Collaborative that we've been working with. And that leaves less money for things like food, childcare, medicine. And vehicles. I've been talking to experts and reading a lot of reports and articles, and I'm starting to understand that we really have two separate crises here. Uh, First of all, and this is true across the country, there's this what they call a, a mismatch between the amount people earn and the cost of housing. There are people who just don't make enough money to be able to afford a place to live, plus everything else they need to survive without help from the government. One family we talked to that sort of exemplifies this first crisis And it's a crisis which has only been exacerbated by the pandemic. Lives at the Red Roof Inn in New London. I think it's fair to say this motel is known as a last resort when it comes to long-term guests. Um, Jessica Varis and Mark Boudreau ended up there after Mark got endocarditis from a blood infection, which is a life-threatening illness that affects the heart. So he's not working a paying job right now, but he is caring for the kids while Jess works full-time at the Dollar General. What they really want, and this is perhaps the biggest theme I've seen in all my interviews so far, is for a landlord to look past their eviction history. In this case, they were evicted in early 2021 after Mark got sick and Jess was only working eight hours a week because there weren't enough shifts to go around amid the pandemic. So they ended up at the Red Roof because management was known for allowing long-term guests and for not running the kind of checks that actual apartment complexes do. So they have a second story room where their two adorable girls, who are two and three years old, have lived out most of their lives now. I mean, they're just, they're really adorable. They got these big smiles and the sweetest manners, and the youngest one wants to be held by everyone. Things happen, and it sucks, but
3: if we give somebody a chance, this is not a way to live. (laughs) My kids don't have nap times. They don't go to bed the same time every night. They don't sleep through the night. It's, it's hard. They need more structure. And then it's not even like I can take them to go run out there because I'm scared they're gonna step on the needle.
2: But now their complicated situation is getting worse because they're getting evicted again, this time by the landlord at the Red Roof Inn, Gulshan Sony, And it's a bad situation for everyone. He says the tenants he's evicting, and there have been 16 eviction cases at the Red Roof since the pandemic started, owe more than $200,000 in back rent. He also blamed local and state social service agencies for sending clients there when they have nowhere else to go, even though officials say they have clamped down on that practice because the Red Roof Inn has just become too unsafe and because it's only a temporary solution. Dispatch logs from the New London Police Department show a steady stream of calls for service, for overdoses, for deaths, for suspected domestic abuse, and for general disturbances neighbors and businesses are making a lot of complaints so this whole thing is very complicated this this first housing crisis is all very very complicated and it is complicated everywhere The second problem isn't quite as widespread in the U.S., but it definitely affects us here in Connecticut, and that's the fact that housing is particularly expensive in and around the cities of the East and West Coast. So New York, Boston, and California, it's a huge problem. Uh, Supply is just not keeping up with demand, and that's for a lot of reasons that this series will go into. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition puts out an annual report talking about how much a person needs to make to afford a two-bedroom apartment. So say you have a single mother with two kids who is looking for a safe, affordable place to live. In this part of the state, she would either have to make $27.80 an hour or work almost two full-time jobs at minimum wage to make ends meet. So housing advocates say there's not enough affordable housing because there's not enough new construction. And there's not enough construction because local zoning laws in a lot of towns discourage the kind of multifamily developments where more people can live for less money. Uh, Some local governments try, and I've seen this, and it's oftentimes spelled out in their official planning documents, they're trying to preserve what they describe as the town's quote-unquote character And this character has been created over time through regulations that promote single family homes on large lots. So there's this idea here in New England and especially in Connecticut, that each city or town is like its own little fiefdom. In other places in the country where counties actually mean something, you don't see everyone clinging so tightly to this idea of local control. But we have 169 municipalities that are recreating the wheel over and over again and trying to put their own spin on it and when it comes to housing they all have their own zoning commissions which are creating and enforcing regulations their own way and you have your planning commissions that are each creating their own plan of conservation and development but it's a state statute that empowers them to do that and that statute says specifically that each town's regulations should, quote, uh, promote housing choice and economic diversity in housing, including housing for both low and moderate income households. So that's in the statute. And that's what towns are supposed to be doing, but a lot of them aren't doing that. And that's something I've heard a lot about from Finn Darby Hudgens, who lives in Norwich and works for the Connecticut Fair Housing Center.
4: It's this giant misconception when you hear people talk that zoning is actually about local control, right? Like, and that the clamoring is that cities and towns have the right to do their own zoning, right? or right to make their own zoning. It's actually an authority granted by the state through 8-2. The state could take it back. The state could say, you failed.
2: A lot of housing advocates point to this gap between renters and homeowners to show how this housing crisis is disproportionately impacting people of color. They say it goes back to housing discrimination over generations. And Finn uh, Darby Hudgens talked uh, a lot to us about that. She explained Um, It relates to the rise of single-family zoning in the 20s. Then the denial of mortgages for those in predominantly black areas after the Great Depression and World War II. Then there was uh, the government getting involved and investing in the suburbs. Um, And yet, following that, um, doing this push for urban renewal, that actually resulted in the demolition of many neighborhoods where low-income families lived. In
4: Connecticut, when you look at the data only 30% of white households rent their homes, mm-hmm. whereas 60% of people of color rent their homes. Mm-hmm. So if you need rental housing.
3: Yeah.
4: You will inevitably have people of color, a higher level of people of color living there. And if your town blocks development, they're saying, we only want white people to live here. Mm-hmm. And when they say things like, we'll build affordable housing, but it's only for our teachers and our firefighters and people who already live in our community they're saying, look build a little bit of affordable housing for all the white people who already live here. Racism is happening. If white people needed affordable housing, it wouldn't be a crisis.
2: So we like to talk about solutions here on this project. And while I've spent most of my time so far trying to understand the actual problem, one thing we're going to be looking at in the upcoming legislative session early next year is how lawmakers are tackling this issue. One of the most far-reaching initiatives being promoted by affordable housing advocates, um, and it's spearheaded by the Statewide Open Communities Alliance, is called the Fair Share Model. This legislation, which didn't go anywhere in this year's short session that wrapped up in June, would put some teeth to the existing state law that says towns have to promote housing choice and economic diversity in their towns. So fair share is a big proposal, but ultimately it would require towns to add a certain amount of affordable housing based on a formula that takes into account things like median income compared to area towns, existing multifamily housing stock, and the poverty rate. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that since... uh, More comprehensive bills tend to get pushed the hardest in odd-numbered years when lawmakers meet for five months instead of three months to tackle the most complex issues like the state budget. So the lack of affordable housing options in this state means long wait lists for any government subsidized housing or for the so-called affordable housing built by private developers with tax credits or federal and state grants. These are the developments you see where a certain number of the units are set aside for lower moderate income renters at reduced rates and to qualify as affordable under the state definition, at least 30 percent of the units have to be set aside for lower income brackets. Um, The interesting problem I found is that sometimes these units for low-income renters are vacant because management can't find qualified people to take on as tenants. These apartments, they're actually sitting empty even though there are so many people who need them. And that's because a lot of these complexes won't take people with evictions on their record or poor credit. Then there's the fact that a family needs to make at least a certain amount of money to qualify for these affordable units.
3: We're getting the traffic. Applications are coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, the a lot of the problems that we're falling into right now are credit issues or eviction issues, yep. really. Um, and some of it is, of course, uh, insufficient income because we do have a certain income bracket with a minimum income that you would have to make in order to qualify. Yes.
2: We spoke with You're Ashley McCormick. At- She's a regional manager for Carabeta Companies, which operate affordable housing developments in Norwich and New London. And she told us about how they had at the time nine vacant units um, for differing income brackets.
3: We have um, three different income brackets here. Right. Um, so like I said, we do have nine currently um, Vacant, but Michelle is currently um, interviewing and trying to offer apartments to the few applicants that um, have been approved. Okay.
2: We also spoke with Kevin Curtis of Griswold. Uh, He's an amputee with disability benefits who's looking for his own place because he's been living for, I think, three years um, in the living room of his daughter's house with her whole family. So he put in an application at an affordable housing complex in Griswold and was surprised to find out that even though it's supposed to be affordable, he did not make enough to qualify.
5: The first question the lady asked me was, how much I made a year. So I said, well, I make 14, roughly $14,000 a year. Well, you got to make 24 grand. I said, you say you're low income housing? She said, yeah, but we're not section eight. It's not through HUD, not section eight or something like that. It's just, you know, just plain ordinary affordable housing. He said, $24,000 a year. If I was to make $24,000 a year, I could rent a one bedroom apartment, pay my bills and have food and money. To go places if i wanted to i can't do that at fourteen thousand dollars a year and now with everything that's going on with the economy with gas prices and food prices skyrocketing out of hell how you know how would somebody make you know somebody like me be able to make ends meet
2: Uh, Another problem is that a person often has to become homeless, and homeless by a very specific standard that doesn't include living in a car or a motel or couch surfing at other people's houses before they can get prioritized for help by the state. So in New London County, Kathy Zoll and her Homeless Hospitality Center are trying to address this by creating a housing resource center.
0: How do we help people from the community that are struggling? Can we do something so you don't have to become literally homeless mm-hmm. before you can get some some help with rental assistance. And so that that's sort of the housing resource center, which is what we're trying to think about is, instead of forcing people who are facing housing instability to somehow figure out, well, I could go here and get this little piece of lead of, you know, I could get this here, I could get this here. How can we really be providing people with a place that can help them figure out what they need and then help link them. Because I can't even imagine being a poor person who's running out of minutes on my phone, or doesn't have a, a lot of money, just trying to navigate all these, these things. And so what we're trying to do at the Housing Resource Center is is to provide that for, for new London residents and so that could be everything from helping people apply for rental assistance but also look for work, um, not, uh, are, you know, sort of negotiate with their landlord. I mean, really trying to think holistically about people as opposed to these kind of siloed programs. Wrong.
2: They want to be this like one-stop shop that they say is missing in the current framework. So. Now we have different groups serving different populations and meeting different needs. The Homeless Hospitality Center serves individuals. Always Home and Mystic serves families. Thames River Community Service in Norwich helps young parents find housing. There's a lot of different groups and a lot of different needs. I mean, you also have other things that come into this. You have job training. um, You have uh, food assistance. Like So the Homeless Hospitality Center wants to become for New London the one place that people can go to get all those needs addressed. I've been talking to a lot of people um, just about their experience. One of them is Josephine Suarez. I don't
3: know. The, The crisis is real. I mean... Two and one only has I mean, can only give you so much information. They can send you to all the places, and those places send you off to somebody else, and
2: you literally go in circles. There's right. there's really not not much help out there. Um, she is a mother. Um, she has five kids. She was living in East Lyme with actually ten of her family members um, in a rental home um, when her landlord decided to uh, sell it last year amid the pandemic. So. For months, she was living in motels and couch surfing with her two youngest children while she was looking for somewhere to live. Um, they ended up in a second floor apartment in Norwich, um, which was not ideal because her mother is handicapped and can't live with them on the second floor. And then, amid all that, what really frustrated her was that there are apartments available, but she can't access them because the leasing agents see that, she, that her landlord had initiated eviction proceedings while she was trying to find a place to live. One of the things she also talked about was how the eviction moratorium that was in place during the pandemic affected the housing supply. So, um,
3: it's, it sucks. I mean there's no funding. There's no, I mean, they do, there is funding to pay for your first month's rent and your security deposit, mm-hmm. one month security deposit. That is great, but you have to find someone who will accept that. Right. And right. a lot of people don't want to. It's a housing crisis because COVID happened. People took advantage of it, didn't pay any of their rent until it was lifted, which was almost two years later or over two years later. Um, it gets lifted and all these landlords now have to evict everybody out. So they put their houses up for sale and the people who bought the homes were moving into them. They're not renting them anymore.
2: Right.
3: So, um, you know, a real estate friend said that she lost half of her rental units to sales and that people are living in. So she doesn't have very many for rent (laughs) and it's happening everywhere because everybody's, you know, coming from New York City and buying up the houses, like, really fast.
2: So we have several nonprofit organizations in the area uh, that have helped fill in this gap between public housing and for-profit developments. Uh, One of them, Hope Inc., has renovated or built 19 buildings on one New London Street alone. Uh, We went to the ribbon cutting for their latest renovation on Belden Street and met the prospective homeowners, Victor Pasquale and Mayraine Ureña. They bought the three-unit house for $198,000 and they're going to be renting two of the units to Mayraine's mother and brother to Victor's father. Uh, There's a restriction on the deed to make sure that the house remains affordable to lower moderate income families for 30 years, and there are requirements to keep the rents affordable as well. So they look at it as an investment in the future of their three-year-old daughter, Arlene.
0: It's like I say, no, my home is
2: her home now. Uh huh. Yeah, for the future. And then there's the newest housing nonprofit, which is the Southeastern Connecticut Community Land Trust. Even though it's a model that's been used all over the world, it was pioneered right here in New London County by Robert Swan of the Valintown Peace Trust. Uh, it was first used in the late 1960s in Albany, Georgia, to make a community for Black sharecroppers who had lost their homes and jobs uh, by registering to vote. Basically, the Community Land Trust owns the land, and they sell the house on it to someone who won't have to pay more than 30% of their income on it. So far, they have one property on Press Street, where the old stone house is owned by Clayton Potter. He was 23 and in an entry-level job at Connecticut College when he bought the house in 2020. The land is held in trust by the community, which in this case is the Southeastern Connecticut Community Land Trust's 40 members. Uh, They use a 99-year renewable ground lease that allows the owner of the house to live there, make improvements, build equity, and turn a limited profit when it comes time to sell the house. Under the terms of the lease, the homeowner gets 25 percent of the appreciation while the community land trust uses its share to keep the price down for the next buyer. Uh, The group's president, Joanne Sheehan, she said she sees this whole model as a pay it forward type that, of thing.
0: And I, I really, I just really love that paying it forward concept because to me that gets back to community. Like that's there's a lot of things that identify what's community in Community Land Trust, and it's it's thinking of the whole community, not just how do I get rich off of this. Because if you get rich off of it, you know what you're doing. You're selling your house to a flipper, who is then going to probably. Gentrify that neighborhood you've lived in, which is what you didn't want to have happen to begin with. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and in a lot of the neighborhoods, certainly in New London, it might go from a black or brown person to a white person because who could afford it? Like who is on that economic spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, David Bingham, a
2: retired OBGYN and environmentalist, is working to find a property for the Community Land Trust to buy in his town of Salem. After he helped preserve thousands of acres of land in town as open space, he said he's had kind of this personal reckoning.
5: The difficulty is that of the realization that this whole movement of uh, of, uh, environmental justice has made me aware that something I've been boasting about is really a problem, which is when we create a, a... Every one of our preserves, every house that's adjacent to it or nearby has gone up in value, Mm -hmm. and that makes it less affordable. Mm -hmm. And so I feel some guilt um, that I never had even imagined.
2: The state statute that's had the biggest impact on generating affordable housing was created more than 30 years ago with involvement from uh, then New London State Rep, Bill Seabus and a lobbyist named Charlie Duffy from New London. They decided the best way to get affordable housing developments built is to give developers a way to get around local zoning restrictions. What the law essentially does is make it easier for developers to take their fight for affordable housing to court Uh, You may have heard it referred to by its statutory section number 830G. Uh, So developers have to set aside at least 30% of the units at a reduced rent for those who make less than 80% or less than 60% of the area median income. The statute has been credited with generating about 8,500 units of affordable housing since it was rolled out in 1990. Um, But in some of the suburban towns most resistant to change, the law has gotten a really bad rap, and people are constantly bringing up legislation to try to alter it. Um, The opponents say it's overreached by the state, it's going to ruin the town's character, Um, and sometimes it's, it's going to ruin the environment. These opponents also argue that some developers use 830G as a threat or a negotiation tactic, which I've seen bear out in my own reporting. So these developers might be like, Hey, you won't let me build my 240-unit mixed-use development here in town? Fine, I'll just set aside 30% as affordable, take you to court, and you'll have no say in the matter. Or, Hey, mister First Frist-Selectman, you say you want to buy the land I'm offering you as open space, but you're not willing to pay me what I want for it. So maybe I'll just put an affordable housing development there instead. It's been pretty interesting to watch these kind of scenarios play out.
1: You can support this podcast and the Housing Solutions Lab by making a tax-deductible donation at givebutter.com slash thedayhousing. We want to thank our community donors and our supporting partners, the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut, the William Casper Graustein Memorial Fund, the Melville Charitable Trust, and the Chelsea Groton Foundation. You can find the housing series at theday.com slash housing lab.